0: Welcome to the Vox Podcast. I'm tired of saying it that way. They all start the same, where it's almost like you're gonna, if you tune in, it's just gonna be, I don't want to, let's, hey everybody, welcome to, you just put emphasis on different words.
1: <laughs> on the different
0: ones. Whatever, Vox Podcast, here we are. Thanks for listening. Um, Tim and Bonnie are here. We're hanging out. We're doing an intro to today's guest, but first, Bonnie's just been on a crazy luck streak lately, and we're all trying to see if we can't, like, glean some of it off. I don't know if luck is, like, contagious, like, osmosis, if I can just, like, <laughs> absorb it into my system. Absorb some of it. System. But Bonnie Bonnie has a quick story to tell about uh, something that just happened.
1: Okay, so, yes, I've been on a lucky streak, and this week was a great week because, okay, so, like, lots of stuff, random things happen, and then Tim Shell got sent out into the world so people are opening it and loving it and that is so exciting and then so okay i've been doing i've run i've been a runner for a long time but i'm also now old and so my joints hurt all all the time and (laughs) (laughs) as you know it is tough to run with little kids because you have to either push that stroller which is way too heavy or like find the right time which I just feel like there's never a right time so I then don't do it and running actually was prescribed or exercised by my doctor it's like one of the best things I could do in addition to therapy uh for my anxiety yeah so I try really hard to stay consistent because it really helps me mentally so anyways for a long time I've wanted the peloton bike okay but it's way too much money I think it's like three thousand dollars um
0: which is ridiculous
1: which is a lot of money. <laughs> and even if I could afford it, I don't know that I could justify... Like, I'm not a pro athlete. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm like... And I'm, you know, regular at best with exercise. So
0: It's not too late to go pro, though. <laughs> yeah,
1: I go Every time the Olympics air, I think that. <laughs> I'm like, could I do that? And then I can't even, like, touch my toes. Anyways, so um, a few months ago, though, one of our actually awesome listeners, Aline, she posted that she won a Peloton bike for this thing they have that's called the Peloton comeback. And it's where like, basically you submit a story and you are discussing things that you have done in your life um, and then made a comeback from it. So something that has been hard or something you've overcome and then they gift you if they, if they choose your story, they gift you a bike like a full-on bike and then all the equipment that goes with it and then a three-year subscription to
0: their workout Dang.
1: Three years? Three years. And it's like, uh, I think it's like 30 or 20 bucks a month. So I wanted a Peloton bike, but I couldn't get one. So I got one for Christmas, like a regular exercise bike from Costco. And then I've been using the Peloton app Okay, And all of that has been fine and great, except for the fact that I can't get on the leaderboard if <laughs> I don't have the actual bike, which my competitive nature, that really irks me. So anyways, a few months ago, after Aline posted that she won, I like talked to her about it, and so I decided I was going to post my story. So I submitted a story based off of me, and then I told my husband to submit a story. based on me about like my back and our stillborn and how exercise has like made a huge difference in my life. So anyways, I'm like, whatever. Probably millions of people do this. I got an email yesterday that I was chosen and I won the bike. And I am so thrilled. I can't even tell you. (laughs) And it's been a long time since I've had a lucky streak. Actually, I don't think I ever have. I've only had a few lucky wins. But this you know what this was like I'm like you know what what's gonna happen it's only Thursday <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. well <laughs> you're in a good season I don't know I mean I know lean into it I you I'm should start to... a hashtag for the um, for the Tim Shell that every time well, someone I... posts their picture do you have one going already
1: no I don't have a hashtag they just tag me or Tim Shell and then I reshare them so it's it super exciting it trending I know I should we're gonna um, release it on Amazon later Um, so that's super fun I know so anyways it's been a good week and now I can just like Peloton and leaderboard my way through the year (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled
0: well you heard it here first you did Bonnie's new uh, celebrity career as a if if you see me in the Olympics
1: as a Peloton biker (laughs) you'll know why how I got there
0: just the stationary Olympics (laughs)
1: yeah exactly a bunch of
0: people in a room trying to outride each other (laughs) I like it. That's kind of my version, I think.
1: <laughs> it's the introvert Olympics. Um, anyways.
0: Sometimes I feel like I've, I've been talking so quiet or monotone uh, that I get closer to the mic and I kind of feel like NPR, like, welcome to <laughs> yeah. NPR. This is Vox Hour with your this host, Bonnie and Tim.
1: I know. I was thinking about, like, if I was on a different show, how would that translate? Because... Of my like giggle and laugh, I'd have to really change the change the way I approach everything. Do you listen to NPR, Tim?
0: I do, although I've been uh, I've been trying to listen to our local radio station. This is a good transition, mm. um, which is a very conservative talk radio. So oh, i been okay. listening to that every day on the way to and from work, and and they have their own hosts from our little town, and then they have. And they uh, syndicate like um, some pretty big conservative talk show hosts from the country, and so I listen My to hip. those and like Ben Shapiro and um, okay. Michael Savage and um, mm-hmm. you know some some of those guys. Some of those yeah. guys they give their two bits on everything, and uh, and then I'll listen to NPR uh, around that sometimes. My I, I drive an old 1990 Honda Accord, and so it has a, it has the original tape deck in it. I have a ton oh of tape gosh, still, but yes. the tape deck has slowly been dying. And so I've just been kind of stuck with the radio, which my kids cannot understand. They're just like, turn this on. I was like, I can't in this car. They're like, I don't understand why. I was like, my <laughs> phone doesn't work in here. And they're like, what? that doesn't make sense. I was like, there's that metal rod that sticks out of the trunk back there. That it, it catches music in the air. And they're like, what? <laughs> All awesome. right. So anyway, the how was that a transition? Oh, Concert. So we have uh, Eugene Cho on today, and yes, he uh, has a new book. So Eugene Cho was a pastor in Seattle. Yep. He founded a big church with his wife um, that he was the head pastor of for I think he said 15 years or
1: yeah, it was a while something
0: around there. Um, he recently stepped down because uh, he's been involved in activism work and uh, he's been writing a lot and felt that he couldn't. I think my interpretation was that he felt like he couldn't give. Being a lead passer, everything anymore, and so mm-hmm. he felt like that shouldn't be a position he was in. Um, so, he has a book that's coming out the, this week that you guys are listening to this. So, um, and it's called "Thou Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk," and it's about kind of uh, how to how to navigate faith and politics uh, within our community as Christians. Yeah. Regardless of if you uh, ascribe to. Conservative or liberal, um, no matter where you are on the spectrum of your political beliefs, just how can we coexist and have these conversations, and how we can agree to disagree, and how we yeah. can not be jerks. So um, we have a conversation about that, and I and something that's been kind of hanging on me the last couple months um, has been just kind of this idea of fear, mm-hmm. and so in politics, that's a big, you know, you'll hear that, but. It's a kind of a big tool where, you know, to try to drum up some fear in people helps to get them to be like, well, then what should we do? And, and you know, latch right. on to a person who says they have the best version of how to oh, how alleviate to stay safe. that fear. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like the main, the main motivator is like, what's the best way that I am safe and my family is safe and there's, I'm protected. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the news does that too a lot. You know, you, you'll always notice that the news is far more negative than positive with things that they're delivering. There's just this constant state of fear that seems to be a, a, a prevalent thing that goes on around here. And, uh, and fear is a really great motivator. It does motivate mm-hmm. people really, really well, but it's a really unhealthy motivator. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so as we have all these conversations about different things uh, where fear may be a tactic or a way to navigate or to stay away from something, um, we just want to kind of push in the opposite direction and say that there is a lot of um freedom and motivation in kind of love and truth and mm-hmm. being straightforward and honest with these conversations. When I went to college, you know how you go to college and you get well, I guess you didn't, you just got yours, but when I went to college what? it was just like <laughs> I stereotype went to, to get a no, I know to get a tattoo. To <laughs> you get your first tattoo oh, in college. Like shoot, yes, you still I was and you're still like, was still, like then, a
1: super real follower, so there was like no way I was doing that.
0: I was a little bit outside of that and uh, but I was at a Christian school, and so someone's mm-hmm. like, "Hey, I'm going to go get a tattoo. Uh, I'm getting it on my foot. Will you come with me and drive me back?" I was like, "Sure." So while we were there, he's getting his foot tattooed. And what then did he get? Guy, I don't remember. I mean, something scriptural. That's all. We were all like, we're like Jesus renegade fish. Christians. We're yeah, mm-hmm. something, something awesome. I'm sure. And then the tattoo guy looked at me. and was like, "Do you want one?" I was like, "Yeah." So I sat down Look and got a tattoo on my impromptu. wrist.
1: Impromptu.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Great. Well thought out. Well planned. I mean, I got a (laughs) Chinese symbol, which in retrospect is not a great tattoo for the white dude to be getting. Um, But I was young and it was 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, But underneath it, I got the symbol for love and underneath it, I have the first John 418, which was just a verse that hung on me for years. Mm. Like it was just, it constantly came up. It constantly, people were, um, I had some weird prophetic moments with people using it over me that just a lot of things happen around this verse. And that's the verse that says there's no fear in love Mm, uh, because perfect love casts fear out. So I think about that in lieu of, um, a lot of the conversations we've been having lately in in lieu of this season, um, that there is no fear in love that we're kind of pushing forward and something different. So this conversation, this topic, I mean, this is the season, right? The, the primary debates have been bananas. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, not super encouraging, and um, just the state of affairs constantly is feels we just this has been a very divisive hectic time period politically, right, and we're entering into a new election season, so it's just gonna go off the rails here in the next couple months, so we want to start having that conversation now in a way that we can um, create a space for people to have um, a safe space for people to have these conversations uh Cho kind of mentions this idea of eating dinner together. Uh, and we've been talking about that on Vox for a few years now about just how, how intentional Jesus was with, um, eating meals with people and how that was just an intimate form of connection and a very, that the table was a very equal place for people to meet and to speak to each other and stuff. So, um, in that way, I'm excited and I'm encouraged for this season because I think we're all trying to pioneer the safe spot to have these conversations this time. Um, so anyway you got anything else bonnie no i, felt, I think that's i a felt great like word. i was rambling there
1: i loved it i think that's a great word um and a good setup for cho
0: yeah so i don't think we probably want outro this i think we leave everything on the table uh during the conversation but without any further ado this is our conversation with eugene cho about his book thou shalt not be a jerk
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast. We are here with our guest this week, and we are so excited. We are here with Mr. Eugene Cho. And uh, Eugene, welcome. You have been a voice, a crucial voice in this space of um, walking a really fine and intentional line. Um, in these like kind of trying times. I have followed your work for a few years. And so you have a new book out, congratulations. It is called Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk. And we are here to interview about it. We're so excited, but why don't you give the listeners for those who don't know you yet, just sort of a brief background of what you've been doing in the past five years or so.
2: Sure, sounds great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and honor to be here. Again, hello everyone, my name is Eugene Cho. I live in Seattle, Washington. I'm married to my wife, Minhee, for 20 plus years. We have three uh, adultish kids now. And um, what else? Um, I wear multiple hats. Uh, I pastor and I recently stepped down from the church that my wife and I planted about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. called Quest Church. It's a very special church here in Seattle. I also run a grassroots humanitarian organization called One Day's Wages please check it out online. And then right now in this season, I'm spending a good chunk of my time encouraging pastors and leaders in this country and around the world. And in between, I'm trying to write books.
1: Mm. Yeah. Which is, I love how you said in between all of that. (laughs) That's, That's a feat and takes so much in and of itself. So that's great. So you wrote this book, um, thou shall not be a jerk and it's just called a. the subtitle is a christian's guide to engaging in politics so um i love that one of the things i read i think a few times in the press materials was you said i'm a people pleaser and i said so this book was like literally the worst book for me to write uh, can you kind of talk about that for a minute
2: Yeah, absolutely. When you said congratulations on the book, I'm like, uh, thank you, I think. Um, (laughs) Because I I am really nervous. You know, as I'm turning Mm. 50 this year, I thought by the time I got to this age, I would feel really grounded and rooted in security, that people pleasing wouldn't be as Mm. an issue as it was when I was in my 20s or 30s. And I realized that we never graduate from that. We're always wanting to be liked Mm -hmm. by everyone. And it just happens to be that there are some topics and conversations, one being politics, especially in our cultural climate today, where you're going to ruffle feathers from all around the, the I guess, spectrum. Mm-hmm. And uh, this book will definitely do that. I think it will uh, encourage, affirm, but also challenge and mm-hmm. disrupt people as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Tim and I both read it. Um, And I agree. I think that you have done a beautiful job in the book of um, doing exactly that, Um, telling the truth, but also not being afraid of where it's going to kind of disrupt some things. Um, But something that stuck out to me is you moved to the United States at the age of six. Mm -hmm. And um, so you hold a story behind one of the top discussions of this political season. Right. So we are so talking about immigration and we're talking about what to do. And um, I'm not going to ask you what you think about that politically. But I think it's worth noting and mentioning is that you have a special voice in the conversation. Um, someone that has is far removed from some of these political issues might not be able to speak into it like somebody you can. And so, like, what memories do you have from mm. immigrating and how has that shaped you into um sort of some of these things that come up in this book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, my immigration story goes beyond my own story. It goes Mm. to my parents and my grandparents. My great-grandparents were were among the first people to say yes to Jesus Mm. in their small little village outside of a larger city called Pyongyang, which is now the capital city of North Korea.
0: Wow.
2: My parents were both born in what is now called North Korea. Uh, When you ask my dad, where were you born? He just says Korea because back then there was only one country. Mm. As most of your listeners would know, a war has since divided the nation into two places. Uh, So it really, their story is part of my story. And when you asked about my immigration story, there isn't a week that goes by where I'm not reminded of my immigration story. Mm. And again, it's not a political statement, it's really just part of my narrative. It's the way that I see uh, the the very world that I live in. And in some ways, I think one of the reasons why I made a decision to say yes to Jesus at the age of 18 was being seen as an other, uh, Mm -hmm. as a six year old, as a first grader at Sherman Elementary School and in San Francisco and in subsequent years. uh, I've always identified as an other, that Mm -hmm. I wasn't really fully American, fully accepted, no matter how impeccable my English or my grammar might be, I was always kind of seen as an other. Mm. But it's kind of the reason why I was fascinated by Jesus when I really began to study about his life. And I think his inclination towards others, the marginalized, that really moved me. And Mm. it has shaped the way that I want to live my life and the way that I want to do ministry and leadership. One last thing that I'll share is, I'm not afraid to talk about it politically. Mm -hmm. I think my concern, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is that my concern with where things are, particularly in our country, is that it feels as if politics informs our theology as opposed to our theology informing our politics. Uh, And so, you know, because my faith is that which compels and changes and shapes my lens, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I just know that it might not always be popular.
1: Yeah, no, that's really good. I think what you said there's where you said, like, I've always identified as an other, um, that's fascinating because I think many of us, like me included white, upper middle class, my whole life. I haven't taken a moment to identify as something until you rub up against it. Right. Like as a woman in ministry, I've had my own sort of things that my, oh yes. Now, now I see that otherness. Um, but I find that fascinating um, in terms of American life, because you do such a good job of pointing out the difference between nationalism and patriotism, patriotism. And I think that you have such a unique perspective because somebody that was like born and raised of like, this is America and we're the best. And know this narrative sometimes that we get taught. I don't think even knows there's a distinction. So can you kind of define those two? Because I think it's a very solid foundation for what you discuss about in the book, how we can approach things a little differently.
2: Sure. Yeah, I think there is a very important difference. And in no way am I trying to knock patriotism. I'm a patriot. I love this country. I'm mm-hmm. a proud, naturalized American citizen. Um, there is much about this country that I love. Yeah, But at the same time, I don't want blind patriotism. Blind patriotism basically, I think, seduces us into nationalism where there's nothing wrong with our country. Everything is perfect. Everything is fine. And I think the danger of nationalism isn't just America first. It almost feels as if it's America only Mm. at the cost and the expense of other people. And that's incredibly dangerous. Sometimes as Christians, and again, this book is written for a Christian audience, I want to challenge and encourage the Capital C Church. It feels as if we're propping up the kingdom of America rather than the kingdom of God. And there is no possible way that the kingdom of America encapsulates the kingdom of God. That is blasphemous. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that we could just be honest, again, theologically, what kind of huge theological errors we're making when we're trying to paint or move or or try to inspire people by this kingdom of America thing. Mm. And that's, that's the difference that I'm trying to articulate in the book.
1: Yeah. And you do a great job of it. And like you said before, we are, when we're putting that first, the kingdom of America first over the kingdom of God. And when we're putting our, we're letting our politics inform our theology, um, instead of the other way around. That fascinated me. I quoted you when I was writing these notes down. Um, like you said, my faith in Christ should inform my vote. Um, and you were, you were talking about that. And I wanted to discuss that with you because on a high level, I believe that on a high level, I want to say, yes, that's true for me. Um, But then you went on to talk about all the different things, the confirmation bias that we see in the media and the desire bias. And so I think sometimes what happens, and I would love to hear your thoughts and what you would kind of help to guide us out of that, is I think we even have confirmation bias and desire bias in how we read the text. So if we're looking for passages to sort of uphold what we believe to be true, we'll find them. If we're looking for passages to condemn somebody, we'll find them. And so how how can we make it a true reality that our faith, our scripture, and the life of Jesus informs our vote um,
2: yeah.
1: in a really true sense of the word?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it feels like we're really digging in now because that's, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that. So, So let me just put it this way. Like in my bias, I think I'm correct.
1: Totally. I think I'm right. Yeah.
2: And <clears throat> in the same way that I earlier shared that there's no way that a political party or a nation can encapsulate the kingdom of God, I have to include myself in that conversation and mm-hmm. say that there is no possible way that without error, without biases or inclinations that I encapsulate, that I monopolize, that I control the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really puts me in a posture of humility. And I don't know about you, but I feel like the capital C church in America needs a bit more pie, a little bit more of humble pie. We need Mm. more humility as we engage these conversations. Uh, And so acknowledging that, yeah, I have my blind spots, acknowledging that I have my biases, acknowledging that when I read scripture, I come in with my lens and my perspectives, which is the reason why I want to be that much more intentional, not just about humility, but I want to be intentional about surrounding myself, not just with people that simply affirm and confirm everything that I already believe in. Right. right. I'm sure there's data out there that we're just surrounding ourselves Mm -hmm. with those that look like us, think like us, feel like us, vote like us. Mm -hmm. And that's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've lost the art of neighboring when Jesus speaks about love your neighbor, he doesn't just mean those that, uh, again, look, think, feel, worship, and vote like us. So I think I try to be very intentional and not afraid of tension, not afraid of conflict, not afraid of engaging in difficult conversations. Obviously, I wanted to be respectful and civil. I think self-care here is really important. We're not. I'm not suggesting that we're putting ourselves or people are just uh, terrorizing us in any ways, but... I think it's important that we're surrounding others, ourselves with others who are going to challenge our thoughts and our views. And then lastly, I would just share that as we vote our convictions, all we can do is do it as prayerfully, Mm -hmm. as humbly, uh, with as much discernment. And just ultimately, uh, we have to just trust Mm -hmm. um, that others are seeking to do those very things as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Discernment is definitely a word as I was reading through your book that kind of just hung in a cloud right here for me the whole time. It was just because so much like when you talk, I think you were talking about Romans, maybe Romans 13 and kind of just the contextual value or the value of understanding the context there. Sure. And then as we're talking about this and kind of uh, bias and and pulling scripture to support uh, political ideals and whatnot and just, you know, your role as being a pastor as well. And just providing context for folks to say, like, hey, actually, this is what Jesus was doing here. Um, this is what Paul was writing to. Um, this is what the different people were kind of struggling with or, or speaking to. This is the context of this, and how that relates as a whole to everything. I think is uh, really interesting. And you had a lot of you had a lot of um, statistics in here that are dealing with this specific topic, like the how many, like the the breakdowns of um, percentages of different ethnicities that people have in their friend groups. Sure. (laughs) I was reading through it and I was like, it's like, yeah, well, those are crazy statistics. And then I started thinking through all of my friends' faces and there's a lot of white faces running through the.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so Tim, think about that. We're trying to have these really important conversations of important subjects. And we actually don't know anyone.
1: Yeah
2: that have or embody those particular values or whatever it might be. I mean, it's just stunning. And so it feels like we're just screaming at each other, lobbying these like one-liners across the aisle, if you will. And it's happening in the church, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't just in our larger culture. I think in the church, it's easy for Mm -hmm. us to kind of accuse and blame the larger culture. It's happening within the capital C church as well. Uh, which is the reason why, you know, I really do want this book to speak to both, I guess, of the major aisles, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I hope that it does, because sometimes when we're talking about politics today, uh, there's a temptation simply to focus on that uh, infamous statistic of the 81% white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And so we want to just focus on that segment of people. I think, um, all across the aisle, this is a call for us to really engage in deep introspection.
0: Yeah. yeah, we we've talked here, and this podcast had a church get planted out of it, and one of the ideas there too was that, um, two twofold. One being that that there was an ideal to have the church body reflect what the kingdom would look like, so just kind of a broad swath of opinions and voices and ethnicities and um, you know. Different ways of thinking and whatnot, but also uh, around this idea of, of breaking bread and eating together. And you do a good job in here too of, bringing, of talking about that because I think it's it's come up for us a bunch in conversation and a bunch in uh, what Vox has has been built around. we have been starting these little micro communities that are kind of focused around eating dinner together and then talking about big topics. And so you, I, I'd never heard of this um, this pro, I don't want to say program, but this organization. What does it make? america dinner again is that the yeah yep. and i think that's a really maybe just share a little bit of that because i think it does speak to a lot of things that you're talking about in here about bringing together people in that way
2: sure you know folks can read more of the specifics but just to give you a kind of a general summation uh, a couple of asian american women after the last presidential election when trump was elected uh, they were just distraught Uh, they were just like shocked And as they began to assess how they wanted to process this, they thought it would be helpful for them to reach out to folks that voted for Trump to kind of learn why. And then they realized, they just didn't know anyone that voted or supported Trump. And that was kind of a, I think a a moment of reflection for them. And Mm -hmm. so they put out kind of an invitation online. If people were interested in getting together, safe space around the table, eating bread together, uh, to have that conversation. And it's kind of spread, not just nationally, but around the world. Mm. Uh, I went to my local um, MADA, Make America Dinner Again, gathering here in Seattle. And it was a fascinating conversation. We didn't uh, solve national debt. We didn't solve immigration. We didn't solve gun control, but we had some very intense conversations. And I think what it did is um, kind of the, we take it for granted, but it kind of humanized people. uh, Realize that, wow, I have very impassionate views that are different than so-and-so, but they also are decent human beings. And I think sometimes we can take the clickbait of media. I think there are extremists. We know that, and we should be strong and fierce in our condemnation of extremism that seeks to harm people. But I think there's a lot of people in the middle that are just trying to figure out how do we wade these chaotic waters. Yeah, uh, And I'm one of those folks, but that was really helpful for me just to again be reminded that people that disagree with me are also human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they love this country. Many of them that I met with at Mata were also Christians uh, and they deserve human dignity as I also deserve that as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I think that's so good. I heard someone say the other day, um, Some of these policies that we're voting for, um, some of them don't, might not, most likely don't affect you. So you need to vote for the most marginalized person you know in mind. How will it affect them? And I got to thinking, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a problem if I don't know anybody. (laughs) who's <laughs> marginalized i can't even hear how it will affect them i don't even know and i can't guess that's not that's not fair so i love the idea of getting around the room and hearing that and talking about it and um having somebody say what it is they think and um of your the most compelling stories in that i thought because it was such an example of exactly what you're talking about um was when you went um and I'm gonna forget the name, but you can fill it in for me. Um, you got asked to go and speak at a conference um, that was a it was a pro life conference, right? And you were discussing yeah. the issue of abortion and and what you had said. What you said in the book is you said like I'm pro life, but I mean that from womb to tomb. So I'm thinking about life for immigrants and kids and the disabled and the elderly, not and then also including, but not just um, the unborn. And then what you said in there is. That when you went and you spoke, um, you got messages from both sides, right? You weren't, <laughs> you weren't, yeah. you weren't pro-life enough and you weren't pro-choice enough and you got messages from both sides. Um, so I, I want to talk about that for a second of what that sort of felt like. Again, I think that's that otherness and our listeners sure. really resonate with that. But um, leading up to then what you say on page 110, you say, I want to change the narrative around the abortion. Instead of America being for or against it, can we make it an ethical choice? And so let's Mm -hmm. let's I want to just talk about what that felt like and then sort of guide because I think this can be a guiding principle for a lot of these issues um, that are coming up and how we approach the topics.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough subject, It's a tough conversation to this day. Right. Um, you know, because uh, there are many who ask me about my thoughts about pro-life and, um, you know, I'm still trying to learn how to, how do I navigate, you know, these conversations? How do I articulate my convictions in a very complex world? Uh, But specifically to your question about, uh, speaking at an event called Evangelicals for Life conference, uh, I was really honored to be invited to speak at this conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was held in Washington, DC. Uh, and, uh, after, and even leading to that event and after that event, I think what shocked me and surprised me was the reaction that I got from some, not from all, but from some folks from both sides. Again, that comment, you're just too liberal, too conservative. Yeah. But I think I got kind of the intense, uh, you're a baby killer comments, mm. uh, from some, uh, was, uh, written about on the Desiring God blog, uh, mm uh and that was really intense yeah and um on the flip side there were progressives and uh groups and even relationships that basically said you're no longer part of us Mm. you're no longer part of our community you will no longer be invited to these things i was disinvited from a couple speaking engagements after that from both sides Mm. and so how did it feel it didn't feel good at all Uh, i felt uh suffocating it felt like there was this big uh, rock that I was kind of carrying on my neck for a couple of days, and I didn't quite know how to navigate that. But I think in some ways, it is a reflection, it's a kind of a small microcosm of this tension that we're called to live in. Like, I don't want to ever compromise my convictions and values, my identity as a follower of Jesus. I don't want to compromise my conviction of a whole life from womb to tomb ethic um and i also was reminded that i don't want to be guided by fear uh, yeah. and that was what mm. was so interesting was i was tempted to do two things number one i was tempted to just cower and hide and never talk about this again
1: of course uh, yeah
2: uh, w- was it worth it you know maybe i won't talk about this maybe this isn't good for my image or branding or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. and the second thing was i wanted to just go to one side yeah. I choose one side so that I would know where my criticism would come from. Yeah. And well, I think and when you we maybe were talking, would cut it in half. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I think part of that tension, you know, again, not, too liber- not conservative enough for others, too progressive for others, is that you're just not quite sure where it's going to come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the two things that I, that I yeah. experienced.
1: Well, and I think that's so good because what can you offer? Like, so I'm reading your book and I'm listening to our conversation and I'm one, and I'm like – yes, yes, yes. Like, I want to be true. I want my faith to inform this. I want to look at Jesus's life, like all those things that we talked about. I feel like, though, our voting system doesn't give space for all the nuance that's involved. So even if I'm going about it by issue, right, like at some point, I have to sacrifice some in order to vote for other you know like I have to weigh them and go I guess this one's more important I guess this is um but what I do is kind of what you said I have a temptation to get overwhelmed and um like I am a huge opponent for voting I think it's one of the things we can do um but my temptation is maybe I shouldn't Maybe maybe mm. this is this is too much or maybe I mm. should just go I know I'm just gonna only vote this I'm gonna only vote that and so what do we do there? There's so, like, yeah. I just feel like in, we talk so much in a faith sense of this we need to wrestle and we need to dialogue and we need to, but when you get there, you check a box. And no matter what yeah. I vote, I'm going to leave some of the things behind.
2: And, yeah. Yeah. It's a great reflection, great comment. Uh, a few things come to mind. Number one, we should just name it. Mm. as you did we just got to name it it's a broken imperfect system yeah it's not the cure-all for all things it's not the totality of civic engagement it's Mm. not the totality of our faith in jesus Mm. it's an imperfect broken system that which i think christians i know that christians should be engaged as citizens of a country we should be informed as best as we can we should be thoughtful as best as we can prayerful discerning But what I would also say is that if we reduce our civic engagement to one vote every Mm -hmm. two or four years, we're actually kind of part of the problem if that's how we reduce civic engagement. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just one of many things that we do in which followers of Jesus are trying to live out, embody faith to be light and salt. Part of the danger, I think, is it feels as if there's a lot of like momentum that voting. Yes, it's important, but if you recall every election mm-hmm. to your memory, for me, every single election, it's the same thing. This is the most important election in our yeah. human life. I've <laughs> heard that phrase every single time, and the thing is, I I believe it then. Yeah, right. I don't like it. And I just listened uh, to the recent uh, Democratic debate in Nevada, heard it again, and I suspect that we will hear it every single election until the day that Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. So is it important? Yes. Is it the ultimate, the most, that, that, that eternity hinges on this election? I know some people might be upset at me saying this, but my answer is no. Right. Is it important? Yes. And so, yes, we ought to be thoughtful and discerning and reflective and do our due diligence, not get manipulated and played by parties and ads. But after the election, the next day, the question I'd be asking is, how then shall we live? Mm.
0: Yeah. And that idea kind of that that one vote brings in, you know, the savior that's going to kind of usher in whatever, like whatever you think is really important. And I think you talk about it in here too, in the um, and it's a conversation we've been having, quite a bit lately which is rad it's just things are lining up in a very particular way during this season this idea of being involved and being intentional within your local community area and kind of what that looks like in a like a I'm doing air quotes like a political how you how you engage with your community how you engage with the marginalized in your like very close you know can you speak to that a little bit because I know you talk about that a little bit in there
1: yeah when you say like in that I think it's your chapter um Thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. You talk about the importance of embodying that.
0: Sure.
2: Well, let me first give an analogy, and I'll come back to it. I think a classic Christian analogy might be that we're enamored about going abroad to do global missions and global like, compassionate work, but we're not willing to cross the street Mm -hmm. uh, to be a good neighbor to our very neighbors who live next to us or across the street. That's a dissonance. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. And so okay. in that same way, I think about how we can be so impassioned about national politics, about the presidential election, and yet we're not necessarily engaged in our local affairs, in our neighborhood, in our PTA, in what it means to uh, know and to embody and to seek out and to pursue kindness and compassion and mercy within our very own streets. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that every single Christ follower uh, would be engaged in politics, but engaged in such a way that it convicts us to embody how we live our lives every single day. And it's not politics that informs us. It's really the word of God, Jesus, scripture, Mm -hmm. about being light and salt.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And looking, we've been talking a lot too about looking at scripture as pointing us towards wisdom. Um, because when we do that, we are reading it and then going, what, what is the wisest choice here? Who am I? What would Jesus say? And so I love that conversation. And I just want to, I mentioned this at the beginning and I forgot. I absolutely mm. love your chapter titles mm-hmm. of your book. They are, they are so great. So I'm just going to read them. Thou shalt not go to bed with political parties. Thou shalt not be a jerk. Thou shalt listen and build bridges. Thou shalt be about the kingdom of God. Thou, Shall live out your convictions. Thou shalt have perspective and depth. Thou shalt not lie, get played, or be manipulated. Thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. Thou shalt love God and love people. Thou shalt believe Jesus remains King. And the afterword of thou shalt not fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think you've done a good, such a good job about of bringing a perspective that, like you said, might not always be popular, um, but I think it's very centered focused. Um, so I just love what you did here and where can people find the book if they want to buy it? Which you uh, yeah, said. I think,
2: right. Uh, well, I'm, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, they can find it anywhere. I think they get their books. Okay. Um, I would love to encourage people to support their small local bookstores if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another company called Amazon where they can <laughs> yeah. find it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I want to just share this one thing. I, I share it in the book, but the more I think about it, and the more I talk about it, I'm just so fascinated by the Lord's table. and you guys yeah. brought this up earlier as well. I love how countercultural the Lord's table, the Eucharist table is. And yeah. as a pastor for me, we served communion every single Sunday. We celebrated communion. Even if the sermon was bad, the worship set was bad the announcements were bad, like we always knew that the Lord's table was good, that it Mm. bared truth and embodied truth. And I always told my congregation that we're mostly 20 and 30 somethings that as it pertains particularly to politics, we didn't have a line in the communion line for the left, a communion line for those in the right Mm -hmm. that only serve juice, and then a gluten-free option in the middle for our centrist. Uh, there's mm-hmm. something so scandalous and beautiful about the Lord's table. And so I, I am praying for that truth and image to be upon the body of Christ as we contend for our convictions to also know that there's something incredibly humbling about the Lord's table.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you, and, and we mentioned it, but I, as you, have, as you bring that back up too, you share some good stories about how intentional Jesus was with eating with people. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's a conversation we've had a lot on here. And I, it, I think it's just so fascinating because it is the most, one of the most intimate things that you can do with another person is sit and share a meal with them and kind of just like have this, have this equal setting at a table and do that with that, you know, just kind of do that, the, that real life stuff with people is really, right. it's yeah. a cool yeah. idea. Yeah, I have a really big, uh, a very important theological question to ask you. And that Ooh, is, yes. um, well, I I, enjoy, I appreciated the story that you gave about playing basketball. Mm. And I just wanted to, like, who's your pick this year? Are you, a, <laughs> well, first of all, are you a Warriors fan being from the Bay Area or uh, are you? You know,
2: yes, I, I grew up with TMC. Yeah. Uh, Tim Hardaway, Mullins, and Mitch Richmond. And uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up, so I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, but having lived in Seattle for 23 years, uh i'm a uh still a grieving sonics fan as well (laughs) let me use this podcast time hashtag bring sonics home
0: (laughs) you know i'll still see durant uh seattle durant jerseys hanging i'm i i actually live close to where you went to davis right uc davis yeah that's right i'm in auburn california so we we grew up sadly sacramento kings fans and still are (laughs) Lamenting that every year. Well, Jesus still loves you. It's okay. (laughs) The table, the table, you
1: guys meet at the table. I'm like, what? Basketball? I don't watch any sports. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, Eugene, this has been a delight. And I'm so, uh, I'm grateful for your voice. It is so, um, needed and I'm grateful for you writing a book that you were like, this is the worst book for me to write, but I felt compelled and called to do it. And, um, thank you for setting that table of being brave, um, and, saying something even when it is unpopular and um i hope though that this book does exactly what um you want it to do and it convicts and brings people to love just like the word of god does so um thank you for sharing that with us so much well,
2: i really appreciate that thank you so much and uh, blessings to you guys
1: oh eugene you know what when mike was on okay sorry mike's a pastor and he's always giving everyone a blessing and yeah. tim and i are like so bad at it would you mind giving our audience a blessing that would be so great everyone would love that
2: (laughs) and you guys just cut out just for a minute and is it you want me to give a blessing yes please yes yes absolutely uh god thank you so much for this opportunity i want to bless this podcast this community Uh, really it's about the men and women and children who gather around this table of conversation And during this time, as uh, we enter into a very politicized, polarized context, help us to remind or remind us about the beautiful image of Jesus extending himself, breaking bread with others, welcoming people to the table, sharing stories. Uh, We pray that each person who is listening to this podcast would be encouraged, convicted, stirred, but fascinated by ultimately the story of Jesus Christ to be light and salt. This is our prayer and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen.